0: Well, thanks for listening to A Podcast for Killer Whales. I'm Allison Morrow. Today we have Tim Regan, who was for 15 years with NOAA as a research biologist and the coordinator for Stellar Sea Lion Recovery. Uh, Also 13 years with the U.S. Marine Mammal Commission. Tim, thanks for being on the podcast today. I want to go straight to the Stellar Sea Lion Recovery part of that because we see a lot of Stellar Sea Lions today. It's probably hard for most people to even think about a time when they needed some kind of recovery course. So can you take us back to that, and then maybe we can use that to sort of jump off on a discussion about the southern resident killer whales and marine mammal recovery and lessons learned? Is that a good place to start?
1: Sure, that's fine. Um, stellar sea lions numbered in the, oh, several hundred thousand uh, back in the early, or late 1960s and early 1970s, but then they declined by about 80%. Their range really extends from... Uh, as far south at one point as the Channel Islands in California, all the way around through the Aleutian Islands. Um, And they are considered to be in two populations, a Western population that eventually was listed as endangered, and then an Eastern population that was listed as threatened. Um, When they declined, a lot of the focus, uh, when they declined in the Western population, a lot of the focus was on interactions with fisheries and particularly are they competing with fisheries? Um, and so my job as the Stellar Sea Land Recovery Coordinator was to try and evaluate the relationship between fishing activities and particularly the Alaska groundfish fisheries that occur in the uh, Bering Sea and in the Gulf of Alaska. And we did focus heavily on the question of is the fishing. Um, taking so much prey that it is uh, making it difficult for stellar sea lions to reproduce, especially, and for young animals to survive. Uh, So we worked on that, or I worked on that for three years as part of my job as the recovery coordinator, and then I moved out to uh, Washington, D.C. from there.
0: How severe did the decline of the stellars get during that time?
1: Well, it was an 80% decline in two decades, so it was an enormous decline, and um, they still only dropped down to about 30-some thousand um, and have been slowly recovering since then in most areas, not in all areas. Um, The severity of that decline, I think, would be uh, judged best in terms of how much they lost, how many animals they lost in just a very short period of time.
0: So what did your research show as it relates to fisheries?
1: Well, it's still controversial, um, but we have long struggled with the issue of how much do fisheries and marine mammals compete. Um, We think that, or at least I thought with the people I was working with, that there was a good potential for competition. And that was based mostly on the notion that uh, they took the same prey. Uh, They often fished uh, in the same areas that the stellar sea lions fed. Um, They fished and fed at the same depths and so on. Uh, And it also was based on the notion that our fishery strategy in the U.S. and in other places around the world is based on the notion that we can reduce a fish population from its pristine level down about 60% in order to get the maximum sustainable yield. And we add a little buffer to that most of the time. Uh, But when you consider how much or what the impact of that 60% reduction might be on other animals like stellar sea lions, you have to conclude that that's a really big reduction. They are hunters, they have to go out and find their prey. And if their prey has been that reduced it's going to make it harder for them it also means that the prey that they find will be smaller um, and less capable reproductively etc so um, our fishing does have an impact on the populations that we take in the bering sea we would take pollock pacific cod at mackerel uh, ground fish or flatfish, um, sablefish sable fish just a whole suite of different prey and all of those would be reduced uh, substantial amounts, which means that animals like Stellar sea lions would uh, have a difficult time finding sufficient prey. There were alternative hypotheses about um, uh, an increase in the number of pollock and what the significance of that might be to the nutritional their nutritional value uh, for Stellar sea lions were i.e. were they good prey for them to be eating. There were uh, there was also controversy over the role of transient killer whales. And how many of those might have been feeding on stellar sea lions? So there were a number of hypotheses. But from my own personal perspective, uh, I thought that the key uh, hypothesis really was how do we compete with stellar sea lions and what's the impact of that competition?
0: So are you saying that no one ever to this point, even today, has made a definitive conclusion on that?
1: I don't think there is a definitive conclusion. I think it's still a question that's up for grabs. Uh, we talk about fishery, um, marine mammal competition in many different places uh, over many years, and I think it is a real phenomenon. Um, but in the Alaska uh, groundfish fisheries, stellar sea lion case, I don't think anybody necessarily has come to the final conclusion that, yes, we really need to back off the way we fish some of these fish stocks.
0: It's interesting as it relates to the southern resident killer whales, right? Because for people who uh, are new to the podcast, they are fish eating killer whales. They don't eat marine mammals like stellar sea lions, like the transient killer whales do or sharks or anything. So if the fish stocks go down, and in this case, particularly they like salmon and Chinook salmon uh, as one of the majority prey items for them. Um, And those are not doing very well. That's why they're not able to find enough to eat. And the conversation, I will say, does not discuss fisheries as often as the other topics like pollution or noise, uh, you know, sound underwater from boats. Um, And as it relates to the salmon recovery specifically it often is habitat. And, and frankly, predators has become a, a real hot topic. What should we do about predators like sea lions and seals? Should we have some kind of call to reduce those predators? But I don't hear the fishery conversation come up as often. I, I have two questions related to that. The first is, does that surprise you that fisheries often is not talked about The same level as these other topics. And then, secondly, what do you think about this idea of culling predators of the fish like seals and sea lions to gain more food back for the southern resident killer whales?
1: Okay, well, with regard to uh, the first question, I think it is a a reasonable concern. um, And that I agree with you that fisheries do not get enough attention. If you were to develop a sort of a graphic illustration of all the different places that we interfere with uh, chinook salmon and have reduced their population numbers or biomass you could start all the way up from the streams in uh, the mountains uh, to where their spawning beds are and you could see how we have decreased that habitat or degraded that habitat then you could see that there might be uh, things that are blocking their passage to the sea when they get out at sea They are taken as bycatch in from directed fisheries, so uh, there's uh, an effect there. And then when they return back here, again, they are still fished in uh, closer to shore areas like the Puget Sound area. Um, So there are lots of places where we do interfere with them, and fisheries directly removes Uh, some of the prey that are potentially available or otherwise available to killer whales. So I think it is an issue that needs to be discussed more. Um, With regard to the second question, That is a hot topic. It's been debated down uh, because of uh, interactions at Bonneville Dam, also at the uh, Willamette uh, River. Uh, There have been problems there. I was part of a task force that looked at that. And it had to do mostly with California sea lions, but also an increasing role of stellar sea lions in taking various salmon uh, runs or fish uh, that uh, are in those areas and that are in really poor condition. I am not a fan of culling, um, and it would be, for me, kind of a last resort. But I have to say that when you have salmon runs that are in such awful condition that they cannot tolerate take by any means, um, you have to take sometimes some really uh, distasteful steps. And so as part of that uh committee that looked uh, to advise NOAA on whether or not they should be taking out California sea lions. I had to say that, yes, in this case, I think they should, uh, but they need to look for the longer-term solutions as well. I do not see culling as a long-term good solution to um, reduced uh, prey or abundance of other marine mammals.
0: Can we talk a little bit about the Fur seals, uh, because this was an action that was taken against that population, right?
1: After World War II, as Japan was trying to recover, uh, they depended in part, in large part, on uh, fisheries. And they were complaining that there were so many northern fur seals in the North Pacific that they were competing with their fisheries. Northern fur seals had been badly depleted in the 1800s and up to about 1911, and then they were allowed to recover. Maybe they were on the order of uh, 1.25 million of them. We agreed that um, that that competition may be Uh, occurring. And in that case, what we did to resolve that was to go out and kill 300,000 adult females. And most adult females are pregnant, so you would have lost all of the pups uh, associated with that or the fetuses associated with that take. We also took another 50,000 animals. um, And when I say took, I mean killed uh, 50,000 animals uh, for scientific purposes. So We have taken some really strong measures in those cases. We expected that the population would decrease some, but then that it would increase again, and that would make for more younger animals because the average reproductive rate would increase with fewer animals around. Uh, That did not happen to our surprise, and that population really is still declining. It has kind of leveled off a bit, but uh, it's still declining since then.
0: So if in the case of the fur seals, you see that the results are not what we're expected, and now we're considering another call, should there be more trepidation around that as a solution if we don't actually always get the results that we're seeking? How do you think through that when you've been a, a participant in action that resulted in something that was surprising and is still a struggle for this population.
1: Absolutely. You do need to be really careful. And what in particular we need to do is be cautious and in, in, in assuming that the measures we're going to take to manage a situation like this um, are actually going to work. And there are, if you look around our country, you can find numerous examples where we've been managing marine mammals. Uh, thought we knew what we were doing and found out that we were really wrong. I can give you a couple of examples. Um, The Cook Inlet beluga whale in the 1990s was reduced dramatically by a take by Alaska natives. We finally stopped that take um, with the idea and the expectation that the population then would just automatically start recovering for two decades. It has not experience that recovery it's just stayed the same and no one understands why that is the case so the lesson may be that even though a population is declines for one reason it may fail to recover for yet another reason um, there are other examples where we've been I think way too overconfident that we know what's going on with these populations um, the Hawaiian monk seal was first assessed back in the 1950s, and from then on, all the way until the last, say, five years, it has continuously declined year after year, even though we thought we understood all of the factors that um, were affecting that decline, and we were taking measures to try to promote recovery. So we need to be really cautious about our confidence in the measures that we take, um, and play, I will say, play this uh, using a precautionary approach. A lot of people don't like that term, but, but we are not as capable as we'd like to think at uh, turning these populations around. For the killer whales, um, I think that has really grave implications. I expect that they will continue to decline for at least a couple of decades, based largely on the fact that uh, there are fewer young adults or young females. And as those young females reach maturity, they will be producing fewer calves and the population will continue to decline. Um, And even though we might take measures now, we might not see the impact of those measures for a decade or more, um, because it's hard to turn a population around like this. Um, they don't automatically just start producing more calves. They've got to get into better condition um, and, and so on. It, it can take a long time. So that means that the risk these killer whales are facing is actually greater than it really looks like right now.
0: Right, you, you've said before that looking at the whales and saying there are 75 of them left alive in the wild is kind of erroneous because the number that we should be looking at is much smaller than that.
1: Absolutely. Um, If all 75 of those animals were males, you would know that we were doomed. There's an example of something like that. The AT1 pod of transient killer whales up in Alaska um, has not successfully reproduced since 1984, five years before the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Well, there are still, I think, six of them left, um, but that pod will go extinct as soon as those six individuals die. Um, So it is a real problem uh, in cases like this uh, that uh, we make assumptions about their ability to recover, um, but they just don't do it.
0: It sounds like, from your standpoint, that these whales have a pretty grave prognosis. Is it worth putting the amount of energy and money into them is it possible that somehow this turns around or is that, in your opinion, kind of fantasy at this point? I mean, I don't want to depress everybody listening to this podcast, but I do try to keep it real. What's your read on the future for this
1: population? Absolutely, we need to, to try. Uh, we need to be really sober about the nature of the risks that are here, but there. are there is no reason that we shouldn't be able to bring these, this population back to a healthy state. And there are other examples around the country. Again, the Guadalupe first seal, for example, was thought to be extinct around the turn of the, uh, well, from the 1800s to the 1900s. A naturalist by the name of Townsend found a small number of them on Guadalupe Island, which is off the coast of Baja, California, and he thought he shot most of them because uh, they collected them from museums, etc. For a number of decades, and thereafter, they were thought to be extinct, but in the late 1940s, a biologist by the name of Bartholomew from Southern California saw one on the Channel Islands they now number be somewhere probably between 15 and 20,000 same is true with the uh, elephant seal in California Uh, at one point we've debated how far they were um, reduced and people thought there may have only been something on the order of 50 of them left they now number somewhere on the order of probably 150 to 200,000 animals so it is possible to recover this population. We just have to be duly cautious and careful uh, about how we do it. And in most cases, that means giving the benefit of the doubt to the killer whales.
0: And so what does that mean from a policy standpoint? Because you've already brought up a couple of cases where you've said, we just obviously didn't know everything there is to know about these species we're trying to recover and they haven't recover the way that we thought they would, in fact, they keep declining. How do humans, faced with such mystery, make good policy decisions to get to the results that you're talking about?
1: Well, that question is right at the core, I think, of what we're doing. Uh, Basically with management, uh, we like to think that we are science-based, but in fact, I could argue that we're really not science-based as much as science-informed conservation in many regards is value-based. And so one of the questions is what are our values? How do we envision the future? What kinds of risks are we willing to take when we're trying to save a population like this? Now, there are a couple of kinds of errors that we can make. One would be to underprotect the population. That is to make assumptions that we know what we're doing, that we know the answers to some of these risks, that we have time uh, to turn things around. Um, And that kind of error could lead us into trouble because this population is going to get worse. And the more more it declines, the harder it's gonna be to recover it, the more costly it's gonna be to recover it, and the more likely we are to fail. The other kind of error we could make would be one of overprotection. That is, we're gonna take steps that maybe impinge a little bit more on human activities or restrain human activities, but with the idea that we don't want to add to the risk to this population, we want to be sure that it recovers. So the real question is, what kind of error are we willing to make, and how do we balance these overprotection and underprotection errors. Um, In my view, we should be taking a really precautionary approach again, Um, and that means that we make errors that give us confidence that even if we're a bit off, we're going to facilitate recovery of this population, not Um, interfere with it or or, uh, lessen the probability of of, uh, recovery. So the question now for decision makers and for everybody in this area is how are we going to do that? Uh, There's one other aspect to this in terms of management that I think is really important. When I was working in Washington DC during the Obama administration, his administration was working on a national ocean implementation plan. And one of the focuses of that was how to do good ecosystem-based management. And quite frankly, that's a really difficult thing to do in most people's minds. We looked all over the country to find good examples of ecosystem-based management. This is particularly right after the Gulf spill and and problems in the Chesapeake Bay and so on. Um, We didn't find a good example up here in the pacific northwest in this Puget sound region or salish sea region we have a really good opportunity to do good careful conservative uh ecosystem based management but it means that we are cautious about what we do that we make sure that we have brought about the kinds of recovery that we're looking for for killer whales And we can provide an example for the rest of the country and really for the larger world about how we can turn ecosystems around. And we really need to do that um, throughout our world's oceans. We've got all kinds of problems, very similar to this kind of problem. We just lost the uh, Baiji, the Yangtze River dolphin. Um, We're on the verge of losing the Vaquita. Uh, which is a small harbor porpoise in the Gulf of California. It was estimated to number about 567 in the early 1990s. The most recent estimate is about 10 animals. And that's a case where we've known almost exactly what is causing them to decline. But we have not had the gumption and the values to say we're going to stop this and make sure that we take the measures that will help this population recover. And I would say the odds now are. Hugely uh, against the Vaquita, uh, and that it's more than likely going to be extinct within the next five to 10 years.
0: It's interesting that you talk about values in regards to the recovery of a species like that, because I remember when I became an environmental reporter years ago and I was taking the baton from the man who had the position before me. I had just finished a series about religion, and I looked at him and I said, Oh, I'm so excited to finally switch from a controversial topic like religion to something more fun like the environment. And he laughed at me and said, you better get ready because there is... There is nothing non-controversial about environmental journalism, and it's because of all of those values that are constantly uh, crossing paths with one another and a lot of emotion and politics tied up in it. So in the case of those uh, species that you just mentioned that may be extinct within a few years, despite all of the knowledge and the research around them— what is it that finally makes the difference to say we are going to do what it takes is it is it just like in this case the southern resident killer whales have um an emotional connection with us or we we feel like they have a, a history here and they represent kind of an iconic part of the pacific northwest i mean what is an endangered species have to have in order for humans to put their values on to that recovery
1: effort? Uh, boy, that's another wonderful question. And it really gets to the heart of the issue again. Um, and in fact, the example that you use, you use religion versus the environment. Actually, I think those two are very closely related Fundamentally, the question that we have to answer is, how do we envision our future? What kind of future do we want our children and grandchildren and future generations to have? What do we think the world should look like or what would we like it to look like? Um, And then we have to be willing to make decisions. We often find ourselves faced with these crises and we think, oh my gosh, we're going to figure out something we can do maybe to make things better. But future generations are going to have to deal with this. Well, right now the question is we've caused this problem. Uh, What should we be responsible for doing and are we willing to make those changes? Conservation at its heart, is a willingness to look at ourselves and say, are we willing to change? Are we willing to adapt? And we know that we will have to do that if we want conservation to work, but it it often comes down to home. Am I personally willing to make those changes that need to happen in order to turn a population around? We do have a bit of a sliding scale. Well, really more than a bit. Um, we look at some populations like killer whales and they are they are iconic they're beautiful animals, we can identify with them. They uh, just are a great representative of other forms of life. Um, but depending on your perspective, I personally think that all those forms of life uh, weren't the same kind of respect. And I do not like to think that in order for us to continue on this earth as we are, that we have to just continuously destroy other habitat and other species uh, because we need more room, we need more space, we need more resources, whatever else that might be. So it is the vision that we have that I think will make the difference. Do we want to change? Do we want to share this earth uh, with these other species? Or are we going to just continue to go forward with the notion that uh, we are the species that um, that deserve the most consideration. I hope that's not the approach we take. I hope we're, we're much more willing to share than that. But that's what I think people have to ask.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of something that I hear not too often, but I, I definitely hear it enough that I try to figure out, okay, I, how do you answer this this comment? And I guess I, I leave this to you Um Perhaps you've heard people say this before, too. In relation to the southern resident killer whales, for instance, people will say, adapt or die. These whales need to learn how to eat something else. They're not adapting to their environment. They refuse to start eating uh, seals and sea lions like the transient killer whales. So, hey, this is just evolution, baby. Get on board. Is that a fair counterargument to what you're saying or is there a problem in that argument I guess when it comes to the fact that in many of these cases humans have caused these problems so it's not just pure evolution in that sense what do you think about that
1: Uh, I think the notion that they need to adapt or die is just really, really an unfair thought. Uh, It means you're causing a problem where you aren't coping. And so it's your fault for not being able to cope when we're the ones that are changing the circumstances so quickly that it makes it extraordinarily difficult for populations to adapt. If you look at killer whales, they're a great example of of a species or an animal that is really, really finely adapted uh, because it's a top level predator. And life for top level predators is not easy. Um, They have got to find enough prey. They've got to move uh, around. Uh, They can't support really large populations. And in order to be successful, they have really finely honed their foraging skills. And you see that all over the world with different kind of killer whale populations. Some will be uh, tuned to, like in the Antarctic, maybe they're tuned to fish, and another group would be finely tuned to to taking uh, crab eater seals or leopard seals or what else seals. Um, here. Uh, These animals, they're so finely tuned to what they're doing in order to survive, that when we throw a roadblock in their way, when we make massive changes in their habitat, we just cannot expect that they will change that quickly. We are much more capable of adapting um, than they are and if if that is our approach really we will pretty much run out of everything because uh, nothing or few things are going to be able to adapt at the rate we need there will be some successful uh, species but there'll be things like cockroaches and rats and etc um, they will not be some of these larger populations like killer whales or lions or elephants etc it's, it's who are we and what do we want this world to look like and How do we make those changes in order to accomplish that? And uh, I am really hoping that we will be cautious uh, to the nth degree with killer whales, that we will be willing to change our own uh, approach to their conservation, uh, to make sure that they are okay, um, and that we will extend that same level of caution to our ecosystems generally. We have a beautiful earth, it's a remarkable place. It would be a shame to destroy it just because we cannot constrain our own behavior
0: tim reagan thank you 15 years with NOAA as a research biologist coordinator for stellar sea lion recovery and 13 years with the u.s marine mammal commission we really appreciate your insight and uh, time for the podcast today thanks again
1: thank you very much for the call